0: Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. Who would like to receive a blessing from God? Okay, most of us, right? We, we want to be blessed by God. I know, I do. Of all, uh, There's only one book in the uh, Bible, of the 66 books, that God says you'll be blessed if you read it. Which book is that? It's the book of Revelation. And so my hope, my prayer, I sincerely desire that you will choose to read through Revelation two or even three times during this series as we're going through the book of Revelation in the ne- over the next couple months. Now today what we're going to do is we're going to pick up in Revelation chapter 5. So you can turn in your, on your phones to the UVersion Bible app, Revelation chapter 5. You could also um, go to a physical Bible, and that's what we're going to pick up today. Last week we saw, Revelation chapter 4, John was transported to heaven. And and, uh, he was transported up to heaven, and and we saw that that was really a picture, a symbol, a a type, if you will, of the church will one day be transported to heaven as well prior to the events that will happen in Revelation chapter 6 through 18, that are referred to as the seven-year tribulation period that will happen at the end of days. And we're going to look at that in the upcoming weeks, chapters 6 through 18. And this tribulation period its going to be the worst period of time in human history. It's unimaginable what's going to happen. But during that time, the Jewish people, they will suffer under intense persecution. But during their troubles, many, many, many of them and people, uh, non-Jewish people or Gentiles, Will come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Today in chapter 5, before we get to Revelation 6 through 18, today in chapter 5, we get the backstory of why this tribulation period is getting ready to come. And in this cha- backstory, one of the things we learn in Revelation 4 and 5 is we, we, we hear about heaven. And it's just an important reminder, I think most of us know, but, but maybe not, you know, solidified for us, but the reality is heaven is actually a real place. It's not a figment of somebody's imagination. It's not given to us just to kind of try to comfort us when we're going through troubles and challenges. No, 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 no. Heaven is a real place. And John is given a tour of heaven. And it's an auditory and visual experience that he gets. I think about some of the words that John lists gives in, in the book of revelation for example he said the word the words i looked he says it 12 times he says the words i saw 34 times and he says the words i heard 26 times heaven is found in over 500 passages of scripture in the bible and 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 the verses all point to heaven being real for example when jesus spoke about heaven here's what he said john chapter 14 he said my father's house has many rooms If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And then Paul, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 said, Our citizenship is in heaven. Everything that matters to you and I, that's important to us, is in heaven. The Father's in heaven. The Son is in heaven. The Comforter's in heaven. Those who have gone before us who know the Lord are in heaven. And our reward is in heaven. It's why Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, he said, Hey, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why is that gain? Because he knows he's going to go be in heaven with the Lord. Randy Alcorn, author, writes uh, uh, probably the best book about heaven that's simply entitled Heaven. I'd encourage you to read it. And he says this. He says, The devil works hard to try to give you and I an inaccurate view of heaven. He said the devil tries to slander three things. He says he tries to slander God's person, God's people, and God's place. And that's what he's about doing. Uh, Randy Alcorn goes on to say, say that one of the primary lies of the devil is to give us lies about heaven. Because the devil knows, our enemy knows, heaven is real. And he doesn't want us to know about it. He doesn't want us to inquire about it. He doesn't want us to be interested in it. He doesn't want us to get excited about it. Okay, so heaven's a real place, and John is transported there. And back in chapter four, we saw last week that when he was transported there, he saw this throne room, and he saw a throne, and he saw the person, the one God who sat on the throne. And today, we're going to turn our attention to chapter five, and as his attention is going to shift, Revelation chapter five, starting in verse one, it says this, and then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll. Everybody say scroll. Okay, that's what we're talking about today. That's what the message is about today. And and he says this, There's a scroll in his right hand with writing, notice, on both sides, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and to open this scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. So now we're going to turn our attention from the throne and the one who sat on the throne to the right hand of him who sat on the throne and what was in his hand. And in God's right hand, we have this scroll. And this scroll has something to do with earth and its inhabitants. Now, scrolls were ancient versions of our modern day books. And and scrolls, you would basically open it up. uh, There would be two uh, cylinders and you would open the scroll up like this. And then when it was time to close the scroll, you would roll the scroll closed on those cylinders. And so many scrolls, if they were legal documents, if they were important documents, if they required them to be sealed, you would wrap a rope or string around that sealed, that rolled up scroll. You would then take hot wax and you would pour that over that rope or that, that thread and then Whoever was a part of that that important document that that needed to be sealed or secured or or the contents were for a later time, whoever was a part of that, they would take uh, usually like a ring of some sort, they they would then take that ring and and push that or punch that into that hot wax, thus sealing that scroll and identifying themselves with that scroll. And so later on down the road, when it was time to open the scroll, when it, when it was time for it to be read, when it was time to be, uh, um, the contents were to be revealed or, or something was to be executed or, or carried out in the scroll, those witnesses who had pressed their ring into the, to the wax, they were the ones who could loose it or break open the seal. With that in mind, let's talk about Hebrew scrolls or Hebrew documents. The Hebrew document that most represents what we're looking at here is the ancient title deed or property deed. And again, I want you to hang with me because I told you, Revelation chapter 1, we're talking about the scroll. And we need to understand the context so that when we come back to Revelation, Revelation 5, just like, oh my goodness, this makes total sense. So the document that most represents this is the title deed or a land deed or a property deed. And when you were to open that scroll, on the inside of that scroll, you'd have all the details written down about that property, about the deed. You'd list all the assets, what's involved, what it's all about. And then you would roll it up, and on the outside of that scroll, you would have the requirements written down of what it takes to get that that property or to buy that property or to, to get back that property. You see, in Hebrew culture... If you lost or had to forfeit a piece of land, eventually somebody who was related to you, who was willing to buy that property back, and who was able to do it, they had the right to get that property back. They could, and here's a word that that we use in church a lot, they they were able to redeem it back for the family. What does that mean, to redeem something, to get it back, to buy it back? And that's why these scrolls, they had these redemptive provisions. They had redemptive clauses. Again, redeem, buy back, get back. That were written on the outside and even on the inside. Again, if property was lost or taken or forfeited, you couldn't afford it, whatever the case may be. These were the requirements to get it back, to acquire it back, to purchase it back. Now, the person who could get the, 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 the deed back, the title deed back, was called in Hebrew the ga'al. Everybody say ga'al. ga'al. There you go. You know at least one Hebrew word now. Ga'al. The word we would use is kinsman redeemer. Some of you might recognize that that word. Talk about it in a moment. A kinsman redeemer. And every kinsman redeemer had to meet how many requirements? Three. You had to be what? You had to be related. To the person who lost it. You had to be willing, yeah, I'm willing to, you know, get this property back, buy it back, redeem it back. And I'm I'm able. I, I have the means to get the property back. Now, by the way, what I just described to you is really the story of the book of Ruth. Maybe some of you have read that before. What's the story of the book of Ruth? Well, land is lost, Elimelech, he dies. His widow and his daughters, that they're away. They had moved away, they've moved away, and they figure they think. The widow thinks, hey, let me come back to Bethlehem to where the land is. The widow is thinking about this buyback redemption clause, right? She's thinking, okay, how do I get this back? And so enter the story, into the scene a relative. The relative's name is Boaz. So Boaz gets involved. He's related. It turns out in the story he's willing To to buy back, redeem back that property, and he's able, he has the means to do it. And so to summarize the story literally in one paragraph, you know, uh, he he does it, he gets it, he, he gets the bride, he gets the family, he lives happily, they all live happily ever after, and that's the story of the book of Ruth. Boaz, he it's the story of a kinsman redeemer. You also have more context, you also have in the Old Testament the story in Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah was a preacher, and he was preaching truth, and it was a truth that was difficult to hear. The Babylonians were coming, and he said, the Babylonians are here, they have come, and and, and God is going to use them to bring judgment upon the nation of Israel. And he said, the Babylonians are here, and they're going to destroy the land of Israel, they're going to take everybody captive for a couple generations, 70 years, and the land would be forfeited to a foreign empire. And of course, he's sharing this message with a whole bunch of people who are liking their life the way it is and and having the wealth that they have and everything that they have and they don't like this message. And when you don't like a message that someone shares, especially a prophet in the Old Testament, what would you do? You did two things. First of all, you put them in prison and oftentimes eventually you killed them. So Jeremiah is in prison. And while he's in prison, his cousin Hanamel comes to him and visit him. And Hanamel says to Jeremiah, he says, Hey, Jeremiah, I know you're in prison. I know it's tough for you. Hey, I'm praying for you. I'm, you know It's difficult. But hey, I have, a, I have a favor. I have a request. Will you please buy my property that's just on the outskirts of Jerusalem? Now, knowing what you know about the message Jeremiah had shared, Jeremiah's thinking, well, that's the stupidest thing I could ever do. Why would I give my money away? The Babylonians are right on our doorstep. They're coming right now. They're going to take our land away. So the land's going to be worthless. So why in the world? I'd rather save that money for when we head out. So why in the world would I get involved with buying the land? What kind of deal is that for me? God comes to Jeremiah. And God tells Jeremiah, listen, Jeremiah, even though this doesn't benefit you, as a statement of faith, I want you to buy the land. I want you to pay the money for it. I want you to get that title deed. Because eventually, after a couple of generations, your family's coming back and they will have the title deed to the property, the right to possess the land again. God said in Jeremiah 32, verse 15, someday people will again own property here in this land and will buy and sell houses and vineyards and fields. So you have this idea of a scroll. It's an ancient title deed, a property deed, and it has redemption clauses or a redemption clause built in so that you can get you back, you can buy back, you can redeem the land. Many scholars believe that, now let's jump into Revelation 5, many scholars believe what we're looking at in Revelation chapter 5, that what the scroll that's in God's right hand, it's the title deed to the earth. It's the property deed to the earth and all of its inhabitants. Track with me here for a moment. See if you can, and hopefully you're following along with this. So let's go back all the way to the beginning in Genesis. God created uh, uh, male and female, created humankind. And you might know the story. God told Adam and Eve, you know, you're in charge. I've given you authority over, over all of creation to rule, to have dominion. Okay? My, the title deed, it, it's It's yours. You're in charge of all of it. Rule over creation, creatures, all of it. You're in charge. Perfect. Everything was good. The devil shows up, tempts Adam and Eve. They're tempted. They fall. They disobey God. They sin. And in their sin, in their uh, turning their back on God, they were thus forfeiting the right of that title deed. They were handing over, if you will, the imagery, uh, jurisdiction of the earth over to the devil, over to the evil one. And how do we know this? Paul said in Romans chapter 5, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. And so death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. So Adam has turned over the title deed of the earth. He lost it. He forfeited it. But it wasn't just people who were affected. Romans chapter 8 says this. The earth itself came under a curse because of this fall, because of this sin. And it says all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom. What's that freedom going to be? It's going to be freedom from death and decay that entered the world upon Adam's sin. Verse 22. For we know... That all of creation has been groaning, some translations say wanting to be delivered, or some translations wanting to be redeemed. All of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And so you, you have this language, this imagery of the title deed and the devil taking it back. It's why you get these different titles for the devil. For example, Jesus called the devil the ruler of this world. Paul called him the God of this age. And John said in 1 John, he said the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Think about Jesus. Uh, uh, Some of you might know that he was tempted by the devil and and in that story, the devil takes him up onto this high mountain and and he's tempted by the devil and the devil says, I want you to look out at all this and Jesus, you you see all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to Jesus in Luke 4, he says, I will give you The glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said. Now, why can he do that? Notice what he says. Because they are mine to give to anyone I please. Now, I do think it's interesting whether it's true or not. What what we do know is Jesus didn't dispute it. He didn't argue the point of what the devil had said. So the scroll in God's right hand is the title deed for the earth and its inhabitants. And the seven seals on the scroll are going to begin to be broken. And we're going to be looking at this in the coming weeks, starting in chapter 6. And as each seal is opened or broken, the earth is going to get purged through unimaginable tribulation and judgment. But it's not going to just be a judgment because, again, what are these scrolls? They're also uh, redemptive scrolls they also have in them redemption, the opportunity to buy back, to get back. And so it'll be a a time of judgment, but also redemption. Because during this time of the tribulation that's coming, Revelation 6-18, through there will be countless Jewish people, God's people, who finally looked upon the one whom they pierced, and they will give their life to Christ. And countless non-Jewish people or Gentiles who will be saved as well. The scroll, look at verse 1 again, it tells us that the scroll is written on both sides. And so what is that telling us? It's telling us that there's nothing else to write. Everything is here. It's complete. This is all of it. This is the record of what God is going to do. It's all contained right here. And then we go to the next verse. And notice that John hears a question, so he sees this, this scroll in the right hand of God. And in verse 2, it says, A mighty angel I heard of them proclaiming in a voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? It's an important question. Who has the right? Who has the authority to step into this? Who has the power to defeat the devil and wipe out the effects of sin on the earth itself and upon humanity? Who has the ability to reverse that curse that had been put on creation? Who's worthy? Who's the rightful heir to redeem? And then we hear something troubling. As the question is asked, who's worthy? Verse 3 And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. Who's worthy to take the scroll? Nobody steps forward. Millions upon millions of angels. Michael, Gabriel, the rest of them, no one steps forward, no angel steps forward and says, I can do it. Abraham, the father of faith, he doesn't say anything. Moses, David, Samuel, you know, Daniel, Hezekiah, uh, all of them, nobody says a word. Nobody says, I'm worthy. I've got the power. I've got the ability. I've got the right. It's just dead silence. And John comes to this realization of what he's looking at and what does he do? Verse 4. John says, I wept and I wept. In the Greek, that literally means he cried uncon- uh, 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 just unconvulsively, or convulsively, I should say. He's just heaping cries to thought, the thought, to think that God's creation and God's creation, the earth, and God's creation, his people, that we would forever be in the hands of the devil to think that God will never do something about the evils of sin and in this world, and sometimes we wonder that. God, are you gonna do something? This is so wrong. The evil is so prevalent. God, are you gonna step in? And you wonder that at times. And John is feeling that. And he's seeing no one's worthy and it's unbearable for him to imagine. And so he weeps uncontrollably. But then verse five says, one of the elders said to me, hey, do not do not weep. I want you to see, look, notice. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. In other words, heaven is real. We talked about that in the beginning, but heaven, we discover here, it's a redemptive place. Something can happen about this curse, about this problem, about the title deed being taken. So John, stop crying. There's no crying in heaven. If you're not laughing, then you're too young. You can ask an old person who laughed at that. Stop crying. Why can you stop crying? Because somebody has come to save the day. And the description that one of these elders gives, he's speaking of the Messiah, the Savior. And notice what he's called. He's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's a reference to Genesis chapter 49 where we see that the tribe of Judah is referred to as a lion. You have to understand uh, Jewish culture and their expectations. And the Jewish people expected their Messiah to come and be like a lion. What's a lion? Man, it's an animal that rules its environment. It's in charge. It has authority. It's the judge. It's the king of the jungle. And then this Messiah is also described as the root of David. It's taken from Isaiah chapter 11. It's also a messianic term, meaning and the Jews expected that the Messiah would come from the family, the line, the lineage of King David. So try to get the picture here. John's in heaven and he's crying and this elder says, Stop crying. There is somebody who's worthy. And he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, and he can open the scroll. But the Messiah wasn't just a lion. We discover here there's another side, there's another aspect of this lion. Look at verse 6. And this is where it begins to make sense to us as Christians. We understand this side. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of God, of him who sat on the throne. So you have a lion, but you also have a lamb. And they're one, same person, same purpose. You and I, of course, know. Who's the lamb talking about? It's talking about Jesus. What do we also know? We also know that when Jesus came at his first coming, he didn't come as that lion, right? He didn't come as a conquering king, which is why the Jewish people had such a hard time accepting Jesus as their Messiah. Because in their mind, all they could see was lion of the tribe of Judah conquering king. That's all they could. They couldn't see the other passages that talked about that this Messiah would also be a suffering king, that he would be a a lamb. So when Jesus came the first time, he was a lamb. He was a sacrifice. He was humble. He was humiliated, but for a purpose. uh, uh, John the Baptist said this of Jesus. He said, look, behold, there he is, telling his disciples and followers, there's There's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 29 times in the book of Revelation, Jesus the Messiah is referred to as a lamb. But at Jesus' second coming, We see in Revelation chapter 19. We know that Jesus will not come as he did the first time as a suffering servant, as a a lamb. At Jesus' second coming, he will then come as the Lion of Judah. And he will come to conquer and to rule and to judge the Messiah that they were waiting for. They will then begin to experience that coming of Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, we see right here in Revelation chapter 5. Now... Real quick, the lamb, notice there's the word "sevens" used a bunch of times in this verse, right? And last week I told you a seven means complete or completion or the fullness of, the full embodiment of. And so it says here that the lamb has seven horns. Okay, well, what's a horn on an animal? That's its strength, right? That's what it used to, to have authority over, over, over another animal, to subdue another animal. So it's a symbol of strength and authority. So combining the horns with this number seven, you get the idea that this lamb is complete. He's the fullness of, completion. He's all-powerful. He has all authority. It says he has seven eyes. Again, the idea, it's eyes, what do they signify? That you see something, that you have insight, that you have knowledge, that you have comprehension. So again, the seven eyes would suggest that this lamb sees everything. He knows everything. Complete insight. And then it goes on to say that these seven horns and seven eyes are the seven spirits of God. Again, it's just another way of saying this lamb is perfect, complete. The fullness of of God, the fullness of authority, the fullness of strength, knowledge, perfect in presence. Notice something else in verse 6. It says, it looks as if the lamb has been slain. In other words, he bears the marks of some past violence as if he had been killed or slain. Again, you and I know, right? This is a clear picture of Jesus. When Jesus rose from the dead, he still bore the marks of those nails in his hands and in his feet, in his resurrected, glorified body. He told Thomas didn't, wouldn't believe Jesus rose from the dead, even though people told him that. He said, I'm not going to believe it till I see those marks. So Jesus shows up to him and says, All right, you want to see? Come on over, check it out. Touch him. Pretty weird, but go ahead and touch him. He had the opportunity to see the marks. Now, I I think about that, and a wild thought comes to my mind, and even a humbling thought. Here's what I wonder. Could it be that the only work of mankind that will enter in with us with eternity in heaven will be the marks that Jesus bears on his glorified resurrected body in his hands and in his feet? And it won't be. Jesus doesn't have those to shame you and I. I picture it as it's a badge of honor for Jesus. As if he's looking at you and I and he's telling us, see this? you were all worth it to me that's how much you matter to me right here this is how much i love you and it carries with god through all eternity in my student days uh, uh when i was a student ministry pastor we used to sing a song all the time that really captured the meaning here of what we're talking about and it, and it went like this it said it said the nails in your hands the nails in your feet they tell me how much you love me and it went on to say And when the heavens pass away, all your scars will still remain. And forever they, the scars, will say, how much you love me. That's why he's worthy. That's why he's qualified to take the scroll. Remember, what did I say? Three requirements. You had to be related. You had to be willing. Yes, I'll do it. And you had to have the ability to do it. You had to be able to do it. First question, is Jesus related to us? I mean, here's God. He, he's not related to us. Well, John chapter 4 says this, the word of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's called the incarnation, that Jesus is fully God and yet fully man also. So he is related to us. He, he meets the qualifications. Second, was Jesus willing? Was Jesus willing to go to the cross or was he forced? Was he just murdered? Good questions. Good questions. What did Jesus say? John chapter 10, Jesus said this. He said, I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd sacrifices, some translations say, lays down his life for the sheep. Notice, Jesus says, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it, and what's the word? I sacrifice it what? Voluntarily. For I have the, notice the word, authority to lay it down when I want and also to take it up again. Jesus could have stepped off the cross at any time. He had the power to do it, but he chose not to. You see, you and I need to understand it wasn't the nails that held Jesus on the cross, but it was his love that kept him on the cross for you and I. So Jesus is related, Jesus is willing, and Jesus is able. He's able to do it. Romans addresses this in chapter 5. It says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. What was that cost? What did it actually cost Jesus? We know, according to the Old Testament Scriptures, that there had to be the sacrifice of blood by a perfect sacrifice. And what did Jesus do? He went as a perfect sacrifice. There was no sin. He was without sin. And he shed his blood for us. We hear the anthem of heaven proclaiming this clearly in verse 9, Revelation chapter 5. It says about Jesus, with your blood, you purchase for God persons from every tribe, tongue, language, people, and nation. So, he's related. He's willing. And he's able. Jesus is our kinsman rede- redeemer. Jesus is the one who's worthy And qualified to take the scroll to open the scroll and as we will see the scroll contains the title deed it contains the record of judgments upon the earth before the Lord comes in his second coming and before he sets up his earthly kingdom and before he he enters we enter into this eternal state so what happens to John and others when they discover there is somebody who is worthy to open the scroll. What happens for you and I when we realize and discover we've been redeemed, we've been saved, we've been bought back, that we have a kinsman redeemer? What happens? The next few verses they show us. Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 8 and following, and it lets us know that prayers and praise go up to God. Verse 9 says they sang a new song. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased, some translations say you redeemed, i.e. bought back, kinsman redeemer. You redeemed for God persons from every t- tribe and language and people and nation. So we discover the news that there is somebody who's worthy to buy back. And what does heaven do? Heaven responds with prayer and praise and praise. It goes on to say that there's 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands upon thousands of angels making declarations. That's taken from Daniel chapter 7. And it just simply means that you don't multiply those numbers. It just means the, the angels are innumerable. And what are they all doing? They're singing out in a loud voice in verse 12 that the Lamb is worthy. In verse 13, it wasn't just the angels who were saying the Lamb is worthy. It says, John saw and heard every creature in heaven on on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. And he heard them say to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. So here's the question. What is the most fitting response? What is our most fitting response to Jesus taking the title deed of the earth from the hand of God and redeeming the world upon a cross And then through these tribulation judgments that are to come to regain control of the earth and its inhabitants from the control of the devil. What's the most fitting response when we discover this news? It's worship. It's worship. We see it in heaven. That's what it's going to be. It's going to be worship here. And and we're going to do a lot in heaven. A lot of activities, heaven's going to be an incredible place. But one of the things, the most important thing, when we gather before the throne of God, we will worship and we will pour out and for God to receive all glory and honor and praise. And so, Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, written by a persecuted Christian to persecuted Christians. And John is telling us, he's setting the stage because we're going to get into something in the upcoming weeks that's difficult. And John is telling us, before we get all that, John wants us to know, God wants us to know, that the world's destiny, it is not under the control of some evil despotic regime. It is not under the control of some dictator. It is not under the control of the devil. On the contrary, we are in the hands of a loving heavenly Father through His Savior, through our Savior, His Son, who bled, who shed His blood who died for us, who redeemed us, that we might be called children of God. So here's my hope. Here's my prayer for you. We're getting ready to dive into Revelation 6 through 18, terrible 7-year tribulation period. We're going to need to go into the Old Testament, look at Daniel and some other passages in Matthew 24, so we're going to kind of jump around. But we're going to dive into this, and I can tell you, we'll read through it and it's awful and it's unimaginable. And some of us will doubt, and when you doubt if this is real or true, or you doubt God, I just take you back and refer you back to our series, Not God Enough, that we did in the spring. And we did that specifically to set this up, to get you thinking about the God of the Bible. And so if you go there, go back and watch that series, listen to that series. And as we get ready to look at this, and we question, and we wonder, and and, and all these things come to mind, God is telling us before we get there, I want you to get a glimpse of the throne and the throne room and who's here and who's in control. Because we discover in this passage, Jesus controls history. He's in charge. It's in his hand. The Father has given it to him. And I hope and pray that this revelation will lead you to do what all of heaven does, and that's to worship him. Almighty God, Jesus is our king. He's our lamb. He's our lion. He's our kinsman redeemer. He loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person events and service times can be found on our website thank you for listening and we hope you join us for our next episode